The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Again, we're looking at the first four verses of Hebrews 1. I know that's what we've been doing the past couple of weeks. And we've been selecting different verses from uh, verses 1 through 4, different sections from verses 1 through 4, uh, based on uh, the, the theme of Christ being prophet, priest, and king. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Christ as prophet, that God has spoken to us in his son. Last week, we considered Christ as priest, that he has made purification for our sins. And today we're going to look at the topic of him being our king from these verses. Now, when we talk about this, when we talk about Christ as prophet, priest, and king, we're talking about him as our mediator. And when you think about a mediator, think about Christ as our mediator, think of a bridge. He is the one that has bridged the gap between us and God. Now, what has created that gap? What created that chasm? Well, what created that chasm is our sin. As Isaiah 59 says, your sins has created a separation between you and God. Christ comes to bridge that gap. He comes to take care of, the, of that sin and everything involved in that sin, including our ignorance of God because of our fallen nature. He's the Word of God. He reveals who God is. The filthiness of our sin, he comes and he purifies us so that we may stand before God. Today we're going to see him as our king as he leads and directs and guides us according to his intended purposes. Now I think our confession of faith articulates very well these offices. Chapter 8, paragraph 10 says, This office, or this number and order of offices, is necessary. For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And in respect of our adverseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to, sub to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. And so today we're going to look at his kingly office. So let's turn our attention now to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, as God speaks to us through his word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This concludes the reading of God's word. May God now be pleased. That is blessing to it. We're going to look at three impressive facets of Christ's superiority as king that should merit our full confidence in him. And they are first, that he's the creator. Second, that he's the sustainer. 
And third, that He's the Redeemer. So first, He's the Creator. The end of verse 2, through whom also He created the world. One of the reasons that this writer of Hebrews gives us for why we should trust Christ and be impressed with Him in His glory is that He is the one through whom God the Father made the world. Now, when we think of this, we should not think of Christ as an instrument or a secondary cause. Rather, because He is God's eternal Word, the full revelation and self-expression of the Father, the Father made the world through Him. God putting His glory, wisdom, power on display in creation. He has done so through His Word. The Son is not only the Father's Word, the Son is also the Father's wisdom through whom He made the entire creation. Proverbs 8 speaks of this, where wisdom personified says, I was with God in the beginning, and I was used by Him to make the whole world. Wisdom involves great skill here. And really the maximum goodness you can think of. And God has put that on display in the wonderful universe that we see. And He has done so through His only Son. Not only the things seen, but also the things unseen. And really this is all we could say about this as finite creatures. We can't really delve into this anymore and give a scientific formula or an explanation for this is exactly how the Father did it. It's a mystery to us. We can't parcel this out. As Hebrews 11 says, by faith, not by reason, we know that God made the world by His Word. And all we can do is bow down and adore our Lord who is the Word of the Father. You know, we would be quite impressed with uh, somebody for major inventions such as the Internet. He didn't, I'm going to date myself here, but didn't Al Gore say at one point that he's the one who invented the Internet? You know, trying to draw some uh, credibility because it would be impressive. Or a doctor who invented uh, the cure for cancer. That would be impressive. Many people would want to go to that doctor and find it a privilege to come under his care. But what can we say about the one who invented the universe? Who invented humanity? Who designed us? That person certainly is worthy of our trust. And certainly we can trust Him to care for us. And this is what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who invented the vast, amazing universe. Not only the things that we see, but also the things that are unseen in, in our very bodies and our very selves. Even pagan doctors are blown away by the human body. And this we know our Lord Jesus has made. And this leads us really to a second impressive facet of Christ's superiority as king that should merit our full confidence in Him. 
And that is he's the sustainer. And this is in the middle of verse 3 where he says, where it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. When you want reasons to trust our Lord, and not only is he the one who made the universe, he is also the one who sustains the entire universe by the word of his power. And this Greek word translated as, as upholds means to bear or to carry. So he is the one bearing the immeasurable burden of the entire vast universe. He is carrying it upon his shoulders. The reason the universe continues to exist, the reason why the sun rose this morning, you know, out of, out of all things we worry about, how many of you worry that maybe the sun's not going to work tomorrow, that the sun's not going to rise tomorrow? Nobody worries about that. And that demonstrates the care of our Lord. The, the reason the stars are fixed in the heavens, the reason why the planets are firmly fixed, the reason why things continue to function the way they do is because our Lord is the one who is sustaining it all. As Colossians 1.17 says, in Him all things hold together. Now again, we, we don't have a scientific formula for this. We don't know how He does this. We just know that He's the one who's doing it. And we understand it by faith. And the idea of carry here. So not only uh, this word burden, not only does it mean, or uphold, not only does it mean to bear, but also means to carry. And carry is this idea of bringing something to its intended destination, to bring it along a course. So it's not that he's just standing there just upholding something still, but he, he's the one that is ordaining all things that come to pass. He is the one that is working out all things together. He is the one who is carrying us along. And if he is the one carrying all things along, and he is good, then can we not trust him to carry us even through dark valleys, even though the waters may be rough and difficult, as his disciples on the sea were in those troubled waters, yet the Lord was with them and carried them through. And even though we are but a piece of dust and a mere vapor, yet he does infinitely care for us. This is why 1 Peter 5 says we are to cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Every hair on our head is numbered. That's how much He cares for us. Do you have your hairs on your head numbered? He knows more about you and cares more about you than you do yourself. He knows the mundane details of when we sit down and when we rise up. Psalm 139 says, he knows every single one of our thoughts from afar. He knows what we are going to say even before the word is on our tongue. He formed us while we were in our mother's womb. We were intricately woven together. You know, it's something that to consider. How worried were you while you were in your mother's womb? And you had no conception of it, right? And yet God was caring for you 
while you were in your mother's womb. And that infinite care has not diminished in the least because God's care for us is based on His infinite, unchanging nature. And therefore cannot be diminished or decreased in the least. Now here's the stumbling block to hearing this. The stumbling block to hearing this is, if God cares for me like you say He does, or like the Bible says He does, then why does He allow me to suffer? Why did He allow me to go through the suffering I went through? If He can prevent it, why didn't He? Why have I experienced so much pain, heartache, tears, and scars if He is powerful enough to prevent it, but also cares for me? If He cares for me, wouldn't He have prevented it? In fact, you telling me that He's sovereign actually is a discomfort to me because that means He was sovereign over my suffering. Why does He allow bad things to happen to me, my family, Loved ones. The first reason is that we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. This life is cursed on account of sin. They say, well, God could have prevented that. And yet, there's a mystery here. That means we're not going to know the full answer. But we do know that man who is made in the image of God, and if he's made in the image of God, he must, in a creaturely sense, reflect the freedom that God has. Obviously, he doesn't have divine freedom, but he has a creaturely freedom. And man, in that creaturely freedom, chose to disobey, and there's consequences for that, the curse of sin. How this works together with the sovereignty of God We do not know. And we need to humbly admit that as creatures. We're finite. We don't know. There's not an answer for us finite creatures. Yet man is truly free, has a true responsibility. Now that freedom to do good is taken away when we fall into sin. And the reason for that is because Scripture describes our sin as we are slaves of sin. We take our Bible seriously when we see Jesus say we are slaves of sin, that means we are truly stuck. We don't have this independence that we think we have. We are not able to choose good or obey God's law apart from God first working in us, taking out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. But because of sin, because of what Adam has done. The world is now filled with suffering. It's filled with the curse. That's why there's much suffering. That's why there's much hardship. That's why there's death. And just because we are believers does not mean that God is going to prevent all suffering and the effects of the curse in our life. We suffer. We get diseases. We will die unless the Lord comes back first just like any other unbeliever. If the minute someone became a believer, all suffering ceased in their life, everyone would want to become 
a believer, but that's not how God has determined it to work. Our suffering does come to an end. Not in this life, but in the next life. The greatest hardship and suffering we will face is in this life. The greatest suffering and hardship that unbelievers will face is in the next life. This is the best they have, and this is the worst we have now. But Jesus says, in this world we will have trouble. But why does God not take away our suffering the minute we become believers? I mean, why do we have to wait until we leave this world if He could prevent it? I mean, if God is more than able to remove suffering from us, why doesn't He? Why keep us in a world where there is suffering? Well, it's because God in His infinite wisdom, to show His infinite wisdom, to put that on display, does not remove suffering and the effects of the curse in the believer's life, but rather uses suffering and the effects of the curse to continue to deliver us from the effects of the curse. And you may say, well, wait a minute, how in the world, what do you mean? How in the world can he do that? How can he possibly use the effects of the curse, our enemies of suffering, death, sin, and the devil, in order to continually deliver us from the effects of the curse, our sin, our fallen nature, even death? Well, because God rather than saying, oh, I, I, I can't do anything unless I remove suffering, says, I'm actually going to use these things, these enemies, as your servant. Death, we're all going to die. Guess what that's used for? It's used as a servant to bring us into the presence of Christ. How about the suffering in this life? Well, God uses all things, including the bad and difficult things, the suffering and trials, for our sanctification to deliver us more and more from the effects of the fall of sin, that old Adam that remains in us. God is at work to remove that old Adam and to conform us into the likeness of the last Adam of Christ. And how does he do that? He uses trials. He uses sufferings. He uses the effects of the curse to do that. This is why Romans 8.28 says, we know. This is not in question when he says this. He says, we know. We're convinced of this. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And what is that purpose? Your best life now? No, verse 29 goes on to say in Romans 8, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. All things work together for this good purpose, that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. And God uses suffering, hardships, and difficulties for this purpose. If you believe God's purpose is to give you a life without suffering, to prevent suffering in your life, you're going to be confused by this. But if you know that you have a true conviction within by faith, 
that his purpose is to conform you into Christ's image, then you will not be taken off guard by suffering. Suffering will still hurt. It will still be painful. I mean, it's called suffering for a reason. right? It's, it's not called a good time. It's called suffering. It's not pleasant. And you can still call out to God in your suffering, as Jesus did. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was a suffering servant. And we see in the Psalms how he responded to that suffering. He didn't say, I'm just so happy. No, he called out to God in anguish. Deliver me. Help me. Be with me, O God. And that's, that's the appropriate response to suffering. While hanging on to the fact that, yes, I know God's working it out for good. And you can even call out to God to deliver you from suffering and ask for better circumstances. But trusting what the will of the Lord is. But we have to know, we have to be truly convinced that God is working out even suffering for our good to conform us into the image of Christ. Now, I've said that God uses suffering to conform us in the image of Christ. That's what it is. How does that work? Well, both James and Peter uses the analogy of refiner's fire. <clears throat> James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I think when we read this, we get stuck on the count it all joy part. And we have a hard time reading past that. First, of, first off, that's typically the last thing any of us want to hear when we're suffering, right? I'm going through a hard time. I'm suffering. Count it all joy? What? You're telling me to rejoice when I'm hurting? That sounds so insensitive and unsympathetic. And I think that sometimes some of us have a tendency to quote only the first few words of this verse to those who are suffering. You're suffering? Well, count it all joy. Moving along. However, James gives us the reason we are to count it all joy. We've got to keep reading. Okay? If, we, if we're going to understand what he's doing here, we need to keep reading. Why do I count it all joy? Well, he goes on to say that we need to know something. We need to understand something. We need to believe something. And what are we to know? We need to know and believe that trials are being used for the testing of our faith, which produces steadfastness. And 1 Peter 1 says the same thing. Now, I think the other thing we get hung up on is misunderstanding what is meant by testing of our faith. I, I think a common understanding of testing of faith is something like this. God gives us a hardship and sees how well we're doing. And then he kind of gives us a grade at the end of the hardship. It's either a passing or failing grade. And if we pass, hey, good job, you did well, you persevered, um, you didn't blow up, and uh, passing grade, you can feel good up, about yourself. Or you get a failing grade. Well, you really blew at that time, I'm disappointed in you, 
you better get to work, try harder. I'm not really going to help you in that, uh, but try harder. And the next test I'm going to give you, the next pop quiz I'm going to give you, you better do better next time or shame on you. I think that could kind of be some of, some of the, the mindset behind this idea of being tested. However, that's not what's in view there. What's in view is a common practice during that time of refining gold and precious metals. In fact, First Peter even says that uh, he ties it to the, uh, the testing of gold. And what this is, is intense heat that gets put to the precious metal in order to draw out dross, draw out impurities that were already present in the precious metal or gold to make it more pure. That is what Scripture has in mind. And so this testing of our faith is not a measurement to see how well we are doing. Uh, did I get a passing grade? Did I get a failing grade from God? Rather, what this is, is God who already knows our hearts, already knows our impurities, brings the fire and heat of trials, of difficulties, to draw out that dross to draw out those impurities so that we become more pure. That is, we become more holy and Christ-like. When trials and difficulties come, they bring out all the unbelief, worry, fear, anxiety, pride, selfishness, and idolatry that lie within us. That spouse that sins against us in areas where we find our identity, such as, such as beauty, or love, or our image, or respect. And they sin against us. It's a legitimate sin for which they are responsible, for which they must repent. But yet God uses that to reveal our own sin, to reveal the areas in which we have idols. He brings that out. To show that our value and worth, what we're relying on, is unstable. We were relying on their love. We were relying on their ability to care for us, their ability to love us, rather than on God. A certain decision or remark that is made that we strongly disagree with, or that that criticizes us. And a response is one of anger or wrath or accusations against the person. Revealing our fears and insecurities. And pride and self-righteousness. The lack of love we actually do have for others. God uses that to reveal our hearts. We tend to blame the circumstances. But the circumstances merely reveal what was already in our hearts. There's dross in there, and the circumstances bring that dross out that was already there before the circumstances that brought that dross out came about. And our response should be to confess this to the Lord and to call out to Him for grace. And then as we undergo similar trials, we find ourselves exercising more self-control more love. We have greater strength in the Lord because our reliance is shifted more and more towards Him. 
And this is the steadfastness of which James speaks. You can only exercise steadfastness and perseverance when under trial or difficulty. We understand this. It's like exercising. Why on earth would we put ourselves under such misery in exercising? You know what exercising is? Just creating misery for ourselves, right? But why do we do it? Well, because there's a certain outcome, right? A good outcome. We become healthier. We become stronger. Uh, we uh, grow in physical strength and ability. And that is and it's, it's that, that hardship and exercise. It creates an occasion for steadfastness. It creates a, cre a, a, a stress that we must remain steady under if we are going to be strengthened and grow physically. And the same is true spiritually. There needs to be some sort of stress that comes that then creates this opportunity for growth and steadfast. We may not understand in the moment the, the trial because there's sin involved, there's evil involved, men are doing evil things to us, and yet God is using even those things for our good. Those evil men must repent. Those evil men must be held accountable. It doesn't mean that we allow certain evils to go on. Those things must be addressed. We must rescue people from evil. And yet, God's going to use that for our good, for our strengthening. And this is why the Apostle Paul, he asked for a certain thorn in his flesh, whatever that was, to be removed. And do you remember what the divine response was? Christ saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for in weakness is my power perfected. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. That needs to be understood. God loves me. God loves me even in bringing suffering into my life. Romans 5 says, we rejoice in our sufferings. And that same passage is tied to God loving us. This is why, again, Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that his trials in ministry caused him to despair even of life itself. I don't want to go on living, Paul said. But this was to cause him to rely not on, not on himself, but on the God who raises the dead. And this is why even the psalmist would say in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And Hebrews 12 says regarding suffering and unjust treatment from hostile sinners and even religious people like Jesus faced. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As Jesus says in John 15, all those the, the divine prune, pruners come out and cut away at stuff, cut away at the idols in our heart, cut away at the things we rely on for security, for comfort, relationships, other men, and so many other things. And it's so painful. No, don't cut away at that. Oh, that's so painful. Oh God, why are you doing this to me? Do you hate me? No, it says, because He loves us. He is dealing with us as sons. This discipline is not, you've done something wrong and if you just stop it, then God will stop hurting you. Rather, since we will always have indwelling sin until the day we die, even sin that we're not aware of, God will bring about suffering in our life to shape and strengthen us spiritually. To draw us closer to Him. To share in the sufferings of Christ. To cause us to more and more look to Him and less and less to this world and the vain things of this world so that we may know His power. We may know His love. We may know His strength. But we can only say this if we have a sovereign King who is carrying all things along by the word of His power for His good and holy purposes. The third facet of Christ's superiority as King that should merit our full confidence in Him. We've seen first that He's a Creator. Second, He's a Sustainer. And then some overlap here. Third, the Redeemer. And I want to just focus on two statements here. The first is in the middle of verse 2. It says, whom he appointed heir of all things, that is, God appointed Christ heir of all things, and then the end of verse 3 and in verse 4, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And I want to ask some questions here and then answer them. Uh, the first is, if he is God... Why would he have to be appointed heir of all things? Doesn't he already have a rightful claim to it as God? And then, why is it that if he's God, that he became superior to the angels? Hasn't he already been superior to the angels as God? And as God, how could he inherit a more excellent name? Hasn't he always had the name above all names, being God? So these are some of the questions I want to answer. And the answer lies in this. It's really a simple answer. Not to say it answers all our questions, but it's really a simple answer. And it's that our Lord is both God and man. The Son of God assumed humanity became a man without ceasing to be God or less than God in any way in his divine nature. And yet in this mystery, as man, man being a creature, he became lower than the angels for a time, as Hebrews 2.7 says. And he, had to, and he became this 
in order to live the life that we were to live, fulfilling our a righteous life in obedience to the law because we need righteousness if we are to stand before God. We don't have that righteousness in and of ourselves, uh, but our covenant head, the mediator between God and man as our king and part of him being king is him fulfilling the law for us so that we would get credit for his righteousness that we may stand before him and we add nothing to that righteousness. He is righteous for us. And He fulfills that covenant of works that the first Adam should have fulfilled, but failed to fulfill. And He also bears that awful curse for violating that covenant. So He became like us in every way, except for sin. But because He fulfilled His work, He has inherited eternal life, not only for Himself, but also for all those whom He represented. But this ultimately was according to that covenant made before time began between the Father, Son, and Spirit, called the covenant of redemption, where the Son, as the Word and wisdom of God, agreed to be sent by the Father in His office as mediator of prophet, priest, and king as a man. And hence we see in Scripture God swearing to His Son. We know what it means to swear, right? It means to keep a covenant, of course. I knew that's what you were all thinking. What it means to swear in Scripture is it means to make an oath, a covenant. And we see that in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest. This office is mediator. So this is covenantal. And in this covenant, the Father chose a people for the Son to redeem. As the Son talks about, the Father has given me a people. And the Son agreed to assume humanity to become our surety. The one who guarantees that we will gain the inheritance by earning eternal life and fulfilling the law, paying for our debts, pouring out His life unto death, and as a reward, He would receive His kingdom, exaltation in His people. And this is why we read this in Scripture. Isaiah 53, 11-12. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous as he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, therefore, because of this, because he poured out his life unto death, I, being God the Father, will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And this is just language of receiving a reward for going out and battling, getting the goods gained from the battle is one's reward. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So because Christ poured out his life unto death, he receives this reward of his people. As Isaiah 53 says there, he shall see his offspring. Who's his offspring if he didn't have children? What's his chosen people? His offspring. And it says he shall see it. And he shall be satisfied. Christ is going to get what he paid for. He's not going to look and say, shouldn't there be more? I'm unsatisfied. No, he will be satisfied because he's going to get his people promised to him by the Father. He's the one who bore their sins and makes intercession for them. And, and Philippians 2, 8-11 through says the same thing. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's because he was obedient to the point of death. This is the covenant of redemption. This is his work as a man. As a man, he receives an inheritance. As a man, he is highly exalted and receives the name above every name for his work of redemption. That is why he's the heir of all things. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He rules and reigns over everything. He's the rightful owner of this world, and hence he is the one who is to judge both the living and the dead. And so, beloved, we can fully trust him. He is the one who has invented the universe. He is the one who is carrying all things along and carrying us in his hands too. And he is the one who has accomplished our redemption and reigns as our king, interceding for us at the right hand of the majesty on high. And as our king, he will keep us safe from all our enemies. Our sins will never come against us. They can never be held against us. Our sins will not drag us down to hell. He will preserve us until the end and then bring us safely home to be with him where we will be with him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to trust you as our king. It's the one who is seated at your right hand. Give us grace to trust him, even in the trials and sufferings when it seems like you have abandoned us, when it's simply your pruning of us for our good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.